Hey, hey, water coolians! Welcome back. We're here today to talk about one of my favorite topics, history. I actually had a dream of becoming a professor of history and, you know, wearing those jackets with like the elbow patches. Uh, but alas, history, she, she had other plans for me. I have now updated to this episode 88 episodes worth of conversations and thoughts that tell my past. But do they really? How many of those episodes are real? And I don't mean that in a way of like, are we living in a simulation? What's real? What isn't? But how many of those episodes did I edit or fabricate to fit a certain narrative that I wanted to tell? You know, it, it's a well-worn quote within the jacket with elbow patch wearing community that history is written by victors. And even to that quote, you know, was it Churchill who first uttered that quote or did Churchill want you to think he was wiser than he actually was. And to be to be upfront and to be clear, I do try my best to keep uh, each one of these conversations as original as when they were first recorded. But there is some stuff that just doesn't end up making it into the final cut. Sometimes a question or, you know, a conversation bit doesn't really work as well as, you know, originally attended. Uh, sometimes I or the guests mistakenly mispronounce something or kind of want to do a reread of something or want to restart, you know, put our words into better phrasing. <laughs> That's probably not the right way to say it, but you, you get what I'm saying, you know, and sometimes just bits and pieces of conversation are only meant for the guest and I. And honestly, a lot of the time, 99% of the time, weird and bizarre sounds come out of my mouth that uh, should never be heard by anybody. But the question is, is what I'm doing wrong? Am I rewriting history by editing a conversation that will live well beyond me? So that's what we get into in today's episode. I, along with Assistant Professor of Sociology at USC, Hajar Yazdia, author of The Struggle for the People's King, How Politics Transforms the Memory of the Civil Rights Movement, unravel how these concepts that we'll discuss in this episode, such as language, technology, movie titles, book covers, natural hair, dress codes, and I mean obviously things like Cincinnati's well-known Skyline Chili, can uniquely shape our present day, but then also, on the flip side, proceed to allow us the ability to alter the future understanding of what should be already firmly etched in stone, because right, the, the past has already happened, right? It's unchangeable, but is it? You know, how does the addition of inclusive language, like pronouns in a space exploration video game, broaden the range of stories that can be told and in turn enhance the depth of our historical narrative? You know, why has it become a favorite pastime for certain politicians and lobbyists to manipulate and cherry pick the words of figures like Martin Luther King Jr. to reshape his legacy to fit their narrative? And you know, is it possible to move past outdated and discriminatory dress codes that have been firmly rooted in uncomfortable rationale? You know, sounds like uh, instances of having to listen to today's episode to find out. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is episode 88 of Water Cooler Talk podcast titled Frankenstein History with Hajaya Yazdiha. Enjoy! This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not. Because they're real. There's so many, like, big, super serious cultural issues and battles and things like this. 
for me, the food culture wars are the most benign and the most fun (laughs) to engage in. Like Uh the way that Texas and Cincinnati could go at it over like what chili is supposed to look like. Like I'm here for all those. I I will totally be waving a flag. I couldn't even tell you what side I'd be on. But for me, that's- I know. What is Cincinnati? Their skyline chili, where it's the chili on the the noodles. Yes, yes. (laughs) And they like put cinnamon in it. And I should say, I lived in Cincinnati when we moved to the States. We lived in Cincinnati for, I think, a little over a year, maybe two years. So I didn't grow up with that chili, but we would go back and visit our friends all the time. And so I know that chili quite well. And when I moved to New York, there was- this like critical mass of Cincinnati um, like exports essentially. And they would have these skyline chili parties where they would just make like a ton (laughs) of skyline style chili over spaghetti. And it was super nostalgic and then also super weird. Like it was like, wow, we're really attached to this chili, aren't we? (laughs) That's how we feel about hot dish here in Minnesota. But (laughs) Ajara, are you ready to jump into our first story of the episode? Yes. First off, are you a gamer at all? Or are you just... I am not a gamer. I should be. Okay. It, it's fun. It, you know, it gets you creative. Uh, but this is from Polygon Gaming, written by Nicole Clark, September 18th, 2023. Nexus Mods boot Starfield mod that remove pronoun options. Nexus Mods, a gaming modification website where users can upload mods, which in themselves are optional changes to a base game to make the game either run or look better, or sometimes both, removed a Starfield mod that got rid of the apparent controversial, quotes on that one, choice by the developers to include the option to select your character's pronoun during character creation. Starfield is the latest video game released by developer Bethesda and is an action role-playing game where your character explores the expanse of space. Despite reactions from the loud minority, Nexus Mods held steady on its decision, stating, Frankly, we're not sad to see them go. They continued, It's not a political statement or an alignment to one side or the other in the cultural war. We stand for diversity and inclusion in our community, and the removal of diversity, while appealing to many, does not promote a positive modding community. Following Starfield's release, a YouTuber, who will remain unnamed, made a viral rant about the pronoun options in the game's character creation screen. Players can choose between she, her, he, him, or they, them, claiming that the decision broke immersion. Uh, This is, once again, for a space exploration game. Uh, In the days following, gaming discussion forums held a few trending discussions about Starfield being quote-unquote woke or political. As the initial wave of conversation died down, this mod and its removal seems to have inspired other waves of gamers clearly upset by the minor character creation option. However, Nexus Mods will continue to stick by their decision as they have in past actions. In 2022, the site banned an account that created a mod for Marvel's Spider-Man that removed pride flags from the city. At the time, the site explained, We are for inclusivity. We are for diversity. So Hajar, much of your work is centered around the idea of figuring out how different factors and actions impact our relationship between different groups of people. How does something like pronouns inclusion in different mediums like video games impact those types of relationships? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we see this playing out in so many different spaces. So this was just one example of many. And a lot of times it's spaces with higher stakes, like workplaces, you know, in schools. What's interesting is the way that it's been politicized. Because of course, identity is always political in the sense that our options for who we're allowed to be in society are always constrained by the way that society functions, the way that it kind of defines who groups are, the kind of legal rights that they're given. Um, But I think like, if you think about it, even on a more simplistic level, it means something quite different to have more options 
for how you can identify as opposed to taking away options. And I think there is this tendency to try to both sides it a little bit and to try to be like, well, both sides are doing this or that. But I do think it's worth just thinking about, are they actually doing the same thing? Like, are the stakes the same? So like when it comes to pronouns, for example, it's really just about making people have more choices for how they see themselves and to be able to represent themselves. I mean, in the space of gaming, truly, there are no stakes. Like, it it means nothing to be able to allow people to just be whoever they want to be. So it actually is quite a statement if you're like, I'm actually going to take away that option for you. I love how it said controversial in quotes, because I was kind of like, well, yeah, I mean, it shouldn't be controversial to include the pronouns. It is a little controversial to take them away because you're really putting your foot down to make a statement. And then it's a little disingenuous to try to pretend that you're not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that that for me has always been the question when it comes to how do we feel like we belong? Because I do think about that a lot, not in my work only, but also in my own life, like raising two small kids. I always want them to make other people feel included. I think it's like the most basic lesson that you teach others is make everyone feel at home, you know, make everyone feel like there's a place for them here. So I think you limit a space for people to tell you who they are. Like when you try to tell them exactly who they should be and who they can't be. I mean, I think that's unfortunate. It feels like one of those issues that should be a non-issue, right? At the end of the day, like, If you want to do pronouns, you can do pronouns. If you don't want to do pronouns, you don't have to do pronouns. But saying somebody else can't do something just because you don't want to do something is so small-minded. You know, I look at it like, say somebody's name is Alexander and they want to go by Alex. And people start calling them Alexander and they're like, oh, I would appreciate it if you called me Alex. People are totally fine with that. But when somebody's like, hey, I want to go by they, them, or he, him, or she, her, people are like, whoa, 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 we're getting too political here. No, at the end of the day, I think you said it perfectly. You know, you want people to feel like they're comfortable and obviously being comfortable in their own skin as they're, you know, more and more getting comfortable and understanding who they are as a person, especially younger individuals, is so important. But to be like, no, I can't do that. Why? It's like, it takes so little time out of your day but it can make somebody else's day. And the fact that, you know, we've talked about it a lot, like even like this YouTuber, anybody who's been commenting and saying, oh, you're being woke or political. It's like, imagine you have friends or family members that, you know, want to feel comfortable around you, but then they see you talking this way online and in the public space. And they're like, well, I don't feel comfortable around this person that I thought I was comfortable around before. And that's what's happening here. You know, you're creating division where, there was no need for division in the first place. 100%. Yeah. I think what kind of sucks is the way that like really clever politicians have been able to create a lot of drama around Mm -hmm. these sort of simple, really basic human moves for just making humans feel like they can be human. I study this obviously, but then I also just like grumble about it at home with my husband all the time because it's <laughs> one of those things where I I don't think people are stupid. I actually think, you know, all Americans come to the table with different experiences, different forms of knowledge. Like you don't have to have a PhD to understand what's going on here. But I do think politicians do such a good job of creating these ideological battles where something like pronouns in a video game suddenly become the grounds for like larger political stakes. Like for you to agree to call somebody by their pronouns makes you think that you're suddenly agreeing to some broader ideology, that you're suddenly voting for a political party. And it's not about that. So I think part of it is like breaking down what's actually going on and then also being really conscious of the political project behind it. Because 
I, I mean, I'm sympathetic to the idea that social change is hard. Like it can be really uncomfortable. Even change in our individual lives can be uncomfortable. So then you scale it up and you think about like massive cultural changes and the world changing around you from what you've always known. Yeah, like I get it. Some people are going to want to dig their you know heels in the sand a little bit. They're going to be a little bit slower to come around. I do think what's dangerous is when the reaction is to fight it. Sometimes I think it's easier and more beneficial to kind of just sit and listen for a minute and try to understand what's actually happening. Because like changes in language are things that happen all the time. Like this is the story of, you know, any culture and any society is that politics and culture are always changing and that language has to change with it. Like you might think about the feminist movement and language had to change to accommodate the fact that women were now in all sorts of spaces where they hadn't been before. Even things like, you know, now we kind of think twice about calling a chair a chairman, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, things like that, or even moves to kind of question the basis of ableist language. Like that's one of the ones I'm still working through because I use things like blind spot, right? When I speak and I don't think about that, but there's a history there and it hurts communities. So I think there's always a value in just being a little more humble about it, being like, okay, let me like listen to the people that are saying they're being harmed by this. Yeah, I think you had a very good quote. You said, you know, backlash will always come. It's a part of the process. Our job is not to appease the other side, it is much more to understand who people are, to draw them into the fold. And you know, at the end of the day, if you're using something like, say, blind spot, and somebody's like, oh, I don't like that. Obviously, you're not going to be like, I'm just going to freaking use it. I don't care what you think. You'd be like, oh, okay, I'm taking you. I have the empathy to take your you know, concerns into consideration and make changes to my life that don't really affect my life. You know, even the, the conversation around houselessness versus homelessness. I mean, like the fact that, yeah, we can just change, you know, homelessness to houselessness because, yeah, technically they don't have a house. They still can create a home anywhere, but they just don't have a physical house. Like that small percentage of a change that we need to make in our daily lives to help out, you know, especially as we get more into talking about like laws and policy and how we write those laws and policy and how much words matter when we do those things. Because as we see, you know, a lot of these politicians, lobbyists will use past language that's now outdated as the kind of Trojan horse to get in and spread what they want to spread. Because if we're going to do this, we got to get on the same page about how we're talking about how we're doing this. Yes, you're totally right. It's like, I'm always trying to understand uh, the resistance to it because that for me is something that's much more interesting and potentially frustrating than, you know, understanding the people that get on board, right? Like I I already understand people that are like, yes, like this is important. Mm -hmm. I'm more interested in the people that are like, no, I refuse to, this is destroying America. Even just like the feeling like, oh, you can't say anything anymore or people are too sensitive now. They weren't like that when I was growing up. And I think about, some of the ways that we just used to describe difference, like people who seem different from us. And it was totally acceptable. And I'm like, okay, yes, it's different now. But is it such a bad thing if we are more kind, if we think a little more critically about the words we use, especially because if you want to scale it up and do the whole sort of scholarly thing, like we know language has a lot of power. It's not just words you say, like sticks and stones, you know, it's not actually like that. Words actually do break bones. Words can kill. So the way that we describe things, the way that we create space for different forms of language around us really do matter. When I know you had spent some time exploring kind of this concept that we're talking about, comparing language, and you had spent some time comparing language around immigration between the Obama era and the Trump era specifically, 
2012 to uh, versus 2018. Can you talk a little bit about like what you learned in that and how the use of language to either make a concept easier to understand or even to make it more confusing is being used in policy? Yeah, I mean, language is always used to muddy the waters, right? To make it kind of impossible to understand what's going on. And what was interesting is I was studying the immigrant rights movement even earlier, actually. I went back to the George W. Bush era and I studied it all the way up to the Trump era. And so it was interesting to go from this moment in the early 2000s when it was nonpartisan, right? There was kind of agreement across both aisles that, you know, we needed to think positively about immigration reform. Mm -hmm. The language around immigrants themselves was actually fairly positive. There was the idea that America was a country of immigrants, that in a sense, we were all immigrants. And of course, we could talk about how that ignores the fact that there are enslaved people and indigenous people. <laughs> but there was like this rosy language. And then the Obama era started this kind of reactionary politics. I'm sure you remember the birther controversy about Obama not being born to American citizenship. Um, there was the whole drama about how he was a Muslim and he was actually anti-American. And a lot of that reactionary politics seeped into the immigration debate. And he was the president who, of course, passed the DREAM Act and made it possible for undocumented immigrants to stay in this country to gain, you know, their education. At the same time, though, he was also known as the deporter in chief behind closed doors. So like one of the critiques that comes in is people will say like, oh, you always go after Trump for his immigration policies when Obama was doing the same thing. And when you actually look at it, I mean, activists were fighting Obama, too. So what's interesting is more the public conception that Obama was a more kind of friendly president to immigrants. And then you get to the Trump era and like just the sheer, ugh, I mean, when I think about the family's separation, which again, is something that did happen during the Obama era. I want to acknowledge that. But the actual babies being torn from their parents during the Trump era, the recordings that went out of the babies crying about it. I mean, I just remember thinking... Like, is this really the world we want to live in? And some of the debates that were taking place online and this language of like, well, they should have never come as if this wasn't truly their only option, um, as if they weren't escaping just incredible violence and feeling that they were going to be, you know, just they're going to be killed either way. So anyway, like not to make it so bleak, but I think part of it is the language around who is deserving, right? Like who has rightfully arrived here deserves to be here, deserves to stay here. Um, who do we consider a true American? That was shifting over time, which was interesting because it's not that the immigrants themselves had changed. It was the same people coming from the same countries, but suddenly the political language around it was dehumanizing them in a way that it hadn't before. It, it's the PR of politics. It's creating this boogeyman that can fit whoever you need it to fit. You know, you don't get as, I mean, we get better at our language and we get more defined on our language. But at the same time, we're using, especially in politics, we're using more vague language because it gets people to vote. It's like, hey, I'm not specifically saying one group of people, but you know who I'm talking about. And so anybody listening to that can be like, I know who you're talking about. And then the next person can say, I know who you're talking about, but that's not the same person that they're talking about. And so they can use this. I, I thought it was really interesting how you kind of talked about confusing language in that paper because... It's so true. Like you see it and it's just the way people talk about things. It's like you could first off cut that down a hundred words and still say the same thing, but be a lot more clear on what you're saying. But like, what's the reason why you're making this so confusing? 
you know, what is the true meaning behind that? And as you talked about kind of, you know, earlier, it's like politicians and lobbyists, sometimes they just kind of want to do that magic trick where they're like, hey, look over here while I'm doing this over here. And it seems like that's what they're using language in, in these cases to say, hey, let's make this more confusing. So it's harder for you to understand what we truly want. And it just becomes this PR politics of my guy's good, your guy's bad. That's all you need to know. Yes. I mean, do you remember that movie? I I wish I could remember what it was called. Maybe it was called like the candidate or I don't know. It was like a funny movie with like Will Ferrell yes. and Zach Galifian. Yes. You remember I what remember it was called? Cause I certainly don't. I don't. I'll, I'll add a correction okay. right here. <laughs> the movie was the campaign released in 2012. <laughs> <laughs> but like that movie was so funny because they had the scene where it was like literally the speech, the political speech of the political debate was just talking in circles and saying a whole bunch of words That didn't actually have any meaning, but that sounded like a little highbrow and a little bit eloquent. And then there was literally no substance. And I did, it was so funny. I did a media training a while back because I was just curious, like if I were to do like, you know, a news interview or something like, how should I kind of change the way I discuss and talk about things? I remember my trainer saying, just think of politicians. If you get a question you don't want, you just talk until the time runs out and you don't have to answer their question. And I said, oh my God, that's, I mean, that's exactly what politicians do. Mm -hmm. And it also just makes the purpose of debates feel so pointless when you think about the fact that they just stand on the stage, do a bunch of, you know, posturing, don't actually say anything of substance. And then we're supposed to decide who won, like, and then go and vote based off of it. It's, you know, when I watched the GOP debate recently, I was actually laughing at how Nikki Haley told Vivek Ramaswamy that she was getting stupider just by listening to him. Because I was like, that's how we feel about all of you. Mm -hmm. My favorite is, I think it's political that might do this, but they break down, you know, every debate for the past, I mean, however many years. And they'll just be like, you just talked for 20 minutes, but you only have two lines of stuff that actually matters. Like, yeah, you're wasting our time as voters. And at the same time, you're making people stupider. I I do think that is a true fact. It's like you're filling people's heads with so much stuff that they don't need just because, all right, let's not focus on the rest of it. Yeah. And I mean, the history of this shows that you like throw in a couple buzzwords that activate people like economy or law and order, and then that's all you have to do. And it just kind of sucks because I think it doesn't give the American people enough credit. I think we're a lot smarter than they think we are. And It also just kind of drives home this false binary between the parties, which is like part of the issue, right? Is that so many times we don't even agree with the social issues of the party. They're sometimes they're super comparable. Like they're actually like not even that different um, because they're just trying to maintain this kind of larger system of power. I mean, when we think about that question of political polarization, which is like the big one that everybody thinks about, for me, it's like we're not just polarized, right? In in thinking about like political parties, it's like we're polarized because we're not understanding social reality the same way. So that does frustrate me because I think we would really be better served by focusing on local politics, the places where our voice actually does get heard and matter. And my hope is that that would scale up, mm-hmm. that once we sort of get into that practice of engaging locally, then then we'd have a greater sense of how much agency we could actually have on electoral politics at the national level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of my favorite um, quotes is something along the lines of, 
it's a lot easier to sell two shirts when you have the same shirt if you change a small thing about it. <laughs> um, but then also on like the flip side of language, like as we get more and more defined in our language, like how do we avoid the pitfalls of, you know, at the same time, further division? Because as we get more understanding of who we are as an individual and we have more language that can describe that, it seems like at that same time, at least from the outside perspective, that oh, we're dividing ourselves more into these smaller and smaller and smaller groups, which can be good, but also seems dangerous. Like, is it is it possible to avoid those pitfalls or does that just need to occur to further transform how we converse? Mm, that's such a good question. I do think one of the misconceptions about having more words to describe who we are is that it creates more categories. I don't think that's necessarily true. I actually think part of it is more about expanding the ways that we can show that we're complex and that we're not just one thing. Um, you know, there is the buzzword of intersectionality, but what it really means is that we contain multitudes and we are located at, you know, these intersecting systems of power. And so part of it is not about like sort of adding it up and deciding like who is more or less oppressed. It's more about recognizing that we come to the table with different experiences that have been shaped by the way that the world around us positions us, right? And I think the, the other piece is having more language to describe ourselves actually gets deeper to the question of our humanity. So it's not just that we're one thing or the other, right? That we can be many things, that we can connect on many different levels. And it's about giving us a way to, to actually see the humanity in each other. But I do think we have to come to the table understanding that, because if we come to the table thinking that it is about division, if it is about a political project, you know, if it's about trying to put us in different camps, then we're not going to be able to fully hear and see the other person who's in front of us. It gives you more opportunities to connect, as you're saying, as you're going in with a good mindset, because instead of saying like, I'm a white person, you're a black person, we can't connect on that. But maybe it's like, okay, I'm a man, you're a man, we can connect on that. Or you like football, I like football, we can connect on it. Like the ability to say, okay, that initial thing, that first reaction, maybe we don't connect on that, but the the ability to have this language to further identify who we are, maybe we can find something along the way as we're kind of going down, you know, the metaphorical list that says, oh yeah, that's something that we share. And so now we can build a connection around that instead of building this connection around division that, okay, we don't look the same, so I guess we can't connect. But really, we're digging a little deeper because we have the language to dig deeper. And now we can connect on something that previously we didn't have the language to connect on. Totally. And I think we also, I say this a lot to my students, I think we're in this world where we feel this pressure to know everything and to show up completely educated about every subject every space. Mm -hmm. And even if that form of education, you know, is somehow oppositional to somebody else's, like, I just feel like we think we have to have like an opinion, a stance, and we have to really stick to it. I'm always pushing for this culture of curiosity and humility, where maybe we decenter ourselves, right? Maybe we come to the table, and it's not about us. And we're just there to listen and learn and hear and just see the other person how they want to be seen. And I do think it can be uncomfortable because so much of this discussion about language, whether it's about pronouns or, you know, even anti-racism and anti-racist language, a lot of it does make people feel threatened because they think that it's coming for them. Um, and I think once you realize that it's really just about opening up space for everyone, it's not a zero-sum game, right? Adding more language doesn't somehow take something from you. 
then, you know, you can show up and actually learn more about other people without thinking that somehow what they say about themselves says something about you. Yeah, I like that. Well, I'd like to welcome to the show Hajar Yazdia. Hajar is an assistant professor of sociology, a faculty affiliate of the Equity Research Institute at the University of Southern California, and the author of the recently released book, The Struggle for the People's King, How Politics Transforms the Memory of the Civil Rights Movement. Her work studies the impact of politics on intergroup dynamics using mixed methods across multiple fields like race, migration, culture, and law. Hajar, welcome to Water Cooler Talk. Thanks, Adam. It's so good to be here. Uh, So from your book, The Struggle for the People's King, much of the discussion seems to be focused around different interpretations, specifically towards the civil rights movement. You have even mentioned how uh, having to do unteaching of the history of the movement in seminars and shared a powerhouse of a quote, by the way, uh, power obscures the past to ensure you misunderstand the present. But as we continue to see advancements in how we interpret the past, for example, I don't know if you heard, but the newest Google Pixel phone has the ability to uh, it creates like a Dr. Frankenstein or Dr. Frankenstein would be proud of it. You got to make sure, you know, the literary people don't get <laughs> mad at you on that one. Uh, but it stitches together a burst shot that detects the best take for each person in, say, a group photo. So if somebody's smiling in one but not smiling in the other, it will take the photo of them smiling and put it into like the final photo. I mean, essentially creating a moment that never existed. Whoa. So, you know, from your book, from your work, from your experience, how do we ensure the past and figures from the past, like Martin Luther King Jr., are truthfully represented in the present and in the future? That's the big question. I think what my book really shows is that before we can even get to the truthful representation, we have to actually take seriously the fact that misrepresenting the past is a powerful political strategy And that once we recognize that, we can see how it happens all the time in the world around us. And earlier I said how I think it's not just about political polarization. It's about like this actual divergence of social reality. And what the book shows is that, you know, over 40 years of these political misuses of Dr. King's memory, of civil rights memory from 1980 to 2020, what I'm showing is exactly how this alternative reality takes shape because the memory of the racial past of this moment that we think of as like the kind of grand climax of all of the racism of the past, this moment gets repackaged and sanitized and distorted in ways that are politically intended to keep us from understanding why racial inequality continues to persist in the present. Mm -hmm. And I think like the main story there is that racism never ended, which I don't think is particularly surprising to most people. But I think once you actually understand how the memory of civil rights and Dr. King got distorted to keep us from seeing that, like then you see how all these policies were able to be passed, how civil rights were able to be rolled back after the civil rights movement, and then how we get to this present moment. Mm-hmm. When I, in preparation for this episode, I watched this compilation of clips of politicians using, you know, that one line from the I have a dream speech and using the word colorblind, which he never said in that speech colorblind, but they always use it. But then at the same time, on the back end, you're like, okay, you're saying that you want a more colorblind society, but then you make it harder for people that don't look like you to vote. And so it kind of gets into these like microaggressions or these subtle racisms that are very apparent in everyday life and everyday politics. But it's like, I can say the N-word because I have a black friend. I can do, you know, racist things because I'm using the words of Martin Luther King Jr. to 
start and bookend what I'm about to do. And it's become so like uh, disgusting almost and slimy when you see individuals, you know, especially and especially even in kind of this field that I am, like we have conversations that go on for an hour, two hours, but sometimes people take clips that are like a few minutes and, you know, everyone will make assumptions based on those few clips. You know, like I was saying that I have a dream speech is 16 uh, to 17 minutes long. That one clip where he talks about, you know, his children and what he wants them to see is a, a fraction, a small fraction of what he talked about. He talked about police brutality. He talked about, you know, cashing that bad check. He was a, you know, he was a hardcore socialist who talked about, uh, he had a really good quote, the problems of racial injustice and economic injustice cannot be solved without a radical redistribution of political and economic power. Yeah. That seems to all be forgotten when, you know, we're talking and commercialized Martin Luther King Jr. into MLK for one day a year. That's totally it. It's the inconvenient king. And it's easy to say this. And, you know, it's a question that I thought about a lot, too, is this question of like, so why is it so bad to remember Dr. King through his beautiful message that connects us all, the message of being judged not by the color of our skin, but by the content of our character, love and friendship and equality and holding hands and I think the big danger, and it's the one that I really document in the book, is that it wasn't unintentional, right? It wasn't accidental that all of his radical history and context and the deeper meanings of his work were removed from his legacy. That was an intentional project by President Reagan when he signed the King National Holiday into law. And so he makes Dr. King this domain for anybody to use, which really is the point of nationalizing, you know, a, a historical figure. It's supposed to be that they become someone that everyone can draw on for inspiration. But what happens is that because he does it in the service of a story about American exceptionalism and the story where racism ended with Dr. King, where <laughs> like he says, racism has been lifted, like the great burden has been lifted from our nation. We signed a bill and everyone was nice. Yes, to each other. we're good. Like, let's move on. That's the project that he started and that, you know, politicians, right wing groups, and conservative groups built on. And that's how we get to this point where it was after affirmative action was repealed. And like we got this image of it was like an AI image of Dr. Dr. King and President Trump, like holding hands and walking off into the sunset as if <laughs> the dream had been realized because affirmative yeah. action was repealed. The irony makes you laugh. But it's also deeply dangerous because it's had these significant stakes. When I think that's something we have to consider more now, as obviously I use that example of the uh, the Google Pixel photo, which is kind of weird. Even I'm even thinking more about it. And then obviously you're talking about AI and like being able to create these photos. And I'm obviously Photoshop has been around for a while, but like it's so easy to change history if people are not paying attention to history. And if people are telling history in different ways and changing, changing around history to fit, you know, like modern day norms and like we have to be careful on that because, you know, it's like, OK, we're doing this and this and it does. It's not a big deal right now. But in 100 years, 200 years, like what is history being remembered from that time? Is it going to remember all the way back to what the original aspect of it was? Or is it going to remember what was popular and what became popular and what became the norm, the new norm? And it's so easy, you kind of realize how easy it is to change history, to change something that has actually already happened and to change it to fit your narrative. And it's become such a dangerous political tool that a lot of politicians and especially lobbyists are using to, once again, create that boogeyman of, oh my gosh, Dr. King talked about this, but 
Did he really talk about that? Yes, yes. I mean, other countries say this about Americans all the time, that Americans just have no sense of history. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we could say, well, on the one hand, it's because we're just a much newer country than the rest of them. You know, they all have like these ancient histories. But I think part of it is also the the story of the politics, the story where like there's the great Orwell. And we love propaganda, man. We love love propaganda. (laughs) It feels good. And we love to get outraged and we love to take sides. But yeah, I mean, I think when you realize it's it's so much more than knowing what happened in the past, it's about understanding how the past actually shapes the literal ground that you stand on today, the way that your life looks today. And that if you don't actually understand what, for example, the civil rights movement was doing and how they were being repressed, what the government was doing, the FBI, if you don't understand that, then it's impossible to understand this present moment. It's impossible to understand why Black Lives Matter has to keep saying that Black Lives Matter. So if you don't get the through line, then it's really easy to just poo-poo things, right? To kind of just say, like, I don't know why they're complaining, like, pull yourself, just work harder, you know, all of these common narratives about inequality that don't understand. It's not about, you know, making people into victims. It's about understanding how these structures persist in all sorts of ways that we don't even Mm -hmm. see. And that's why, I mean, I'm such a big supporter of independent journalism and just the aspect of being able to tell a story without the the influences of money or the influences of more powerful people. And even, I mean, you know, I know for say like crime, even getting witnesses, like they could be in that area, they could have seen the whole thing. But when they come in, you know, a day later, a week later, a month later, that story is not going to be exactly what that story should have been. So there's always, there's no really true truth. It's always our objective truth. What are we bringing to the table that's going to change how we tell a story? When we talk about history, who's writing that history book? You know, when we talk about journalism, who's writing? Like, what are they bringing to the table that's impacting the story being told and impacting how we remember it 10, 50, 100,000 years from now? For me, what you're saying is so much the story of critical thinking. People think all the time about how if you just educate people enough, they'll somehow wake up and understand what's going on. I always say education is not enough, but I'm always referring specifically to formal education. But critical education, which is what you're describing, is actually being able to think deeper about what you're reading, right? To think about how was this knowledge created? What was the moment where it was created? What was going on around it? What's the context, you know? So making those connections is not something that comes naturally. Although I think we all have an innate skill to do it mm-hmm. because like we're social beings, right? Humans are social <laughs> beings and we are naturally connected to one another and need one another. But it just gets really easy to explain it away. And I mean, when we hear about these textbooks that tell these completely like sanitized revisionist histories, ones where like slavery wasn't so bad, you know, where dinosaurs and humans are living together. Yes. Like, (laughs) I mean, it's so again, we're like laughing about it, but it's literally what some kids are learning. It's terrifying. I just watched the homeschool episode from John Oliver. And he talked about, you know, them teaching that exactly like dinosaurs and humans live together. Like one of them was talking about like, these really alt-right kind of belief systems. And like the mom was just like, this is what I want my kids to learn. And that's what's happening. You know, that's the the educations that are happening. And like, yeah, you can say, just educate yourself and put a book. But it's like, how is that being taught? How is it being thought about? How is it being processed? Like, these are all things that are so important when we talk about education. Yes. And like, when you build this large perception of political threat against white people against conservatives, which is really what the political right has done, is created this perception of immense threat 
like black and brown people are coming for you, quote unquote, woke culture is going to come for you and your kids, then yeah, people are going to literally escape into their bunkers and teach their kids these, what we call kind of wonky things. I mean, I just, I'm always like an Eagles, I think, or people are always like, okay, well, give us like the details on the ground about like, you know, point A, point B, point C about what we're going to do. I'm like, listen, I'm happy to talk about that, but I'm the eagle's eye person up here who's showing you these patterns and telling you that we can't even figure out what to do until we all accept the patterns. And that's going to be its own challenge. Uh, So in your book, Hajar, The Struggle for the People's King, originally it had a different title. And since we've spent so much time today talking about the importance of language, how does even something like changing the title of a book impact our perception and interpretation towards that work? And it's overall essential meaning. Yeah, what a fantastic question. It's funny how they always say, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. But <laughs> it's I, I like think the first any, thing you see. Yes, like but any brand or marketer would tell you that's exactly what people do. And the original title of my book was The Kingmakers. So I was thinking about it as kind of like a cute pun because I was thinking about the the people who make Martin Luther King Jr., how they make his legacy, remake it, distort it. And one of the arguments in the book is that it's all sorts of different groups, all sorts of different political parties and political interests over time. But, um, you know, my press went to their marketing team and the marketing team was like, if it's named the Kingmakers, people are going to think that it's about royalty. Like they're going to think they're going to be getting something about like Harry and Meghan in here and William and Kate. And I was like, oh, well, that'd be great because then it'll really sell a lot of copies, but people are going to be <laughs> super disappointed. So, you know, we went back to the drawing board. And I think part of rethinking the title was really about thinking about the themes of the book. So we were thinking about how struggle was so central to it. And then it was my husband who said to me, well, you know, you're really thinking about the people's king because Martin Luther King has been made this kind of symbol for everyone. So I think after we sat with that, we kind of put the pieces together. But yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that the way you title the book the way you kind of put language on anything really shapes the way that people either gravitate towards it or are completely repulsed and rejecting it. Mm-hmm. I remember um, the movie, I think it was with Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt, Edge of Tomorrow. And the like. there's original title, there's like confusion between live, die, repeat. But anyways, to the point, like it was a really good movie, but because the title was so confusing and people were like, wait, is it this movie or this movie? Oh, these are the same movie? Or even with um, John Carter, I don't know if you ever saw that one. First off, like when you hear that title, you're like, this is just about some random white guy. But really, it's just like really cool story about this guy who protects Mars. And he's like, it was a really good movie. But once again, like the title of this movie, people are like, I'm not going to go see something called John Carter. That's like the most boring name I've ever heard in my life. No offense to anyone called John Carter. <laughs> But it does play a huge factor in how people perceive and if they want to take that next step. Like even, you know, I know Netflix does a ton of testing, A-B testing with thumbnails for their movies because something works here and something doesn't work here. So there's so much money that goes into it, as your publishers probably knows, that you have to really nail that initial eye test. Like if people aren't initially be like, okay, I'm looking at it, but then I'm taking that extra second. I'm taking that extra two seconds. That's how you get things sold. And it's it's crazy that you have to like do all this, you know, uh, some conscious mind trickery to get something that's good sold. But at the end of the day, you do because there are so many options. And even, you know, I was at a bookstore yesterday and I was like, all right, I'm looking for like a book that just like looks good. And I wasn't even considering the content of the book. I was just being like, all right, whoever has the best cover, 
I'm going to take that extra second to flip the book over, to look at the back, to read it, to read about the author, to read the, you know, kind of short summary of the book. But there are tons of books that I was just like, I'm not even going to look at you because you don't look good to me. And that's crazy to think about. It's true, though. I mean, when you think about all of the like doom scrolling that we do all the time, I mean, it translates to every realm of our lives where we're just looking for the one kind of thing that's going to make us stop. And I mean, this is exactly what all marketing and branding is built around now is, mm-hmm. but I think where it gets dangerous is like, that's also the story behind clickbait. And that's part of the story of why we get so much disinformation or distorted information. I, even in writing the book, I remember being completely shocked that all of these misuses of Dr. King had like major news stories around them. They were like in the top papers. And it would be these cases where right-wing politicians are using Dr. King's memory or civil rights memory, and it's completely false. It's completely untruthful. And yet they get a whole news story about it. And you would think like there was no resistance based on these stories. But then I would go and do the deeper research, look at organizations and press releases. Like it turns out like Black communities were fighting back at every turn. They were putting out counter protests. They were putting out counter statements. You'd have members of King's family speaking out. But it was not making it into the news. And it's obviously because it wasn't clickbait. It wasn't sensationalist. So media is super complicit in our distortion of reality because they have this personal profit interest where they need people to buy their newspaper. They need people to keep looking, to stay on the page. And I mean, yeah, that definitely comes through with writing books as well. (laughs) I think it's also like the story of the academic celebrity Like when you think about how certain academics have become like these huge household names and they get so much funding and opportunities behind it. And it's unfortunate that we live in this kind of world where we all have to sort of brand ourselves and do this kind of marketing thing when like really, I I have to say, even as somebody who doesn't think of themselves as that old, but I guess I kind of am at this point, like I miss the days before the internet. (laughs) Well, even as you're saying, you know, people read maybe the original title of your book, The Kingsmaker, and like, oh, I'm thinking about royalty. They go into reading your book with that on their mind, and they're taking away something totally different than what you were expecting. And that is so vital to how content is consumed. Because even like when I'm thinking about like titles for this episode, I'm like, all right, I want it to be about something we've talked about, but also it has to be something that grabs in people. That's like, oh yeah, I want to click that. Right? Yeah. It's the attention economy and it sucks and we're all so tired. And it's also like information <laughs> overload. It's like, obviously there's also the the piece where it floods our brain with so much information all the time that we are exhausted mm-hmm. and it totally limits our capacity to do things like outside of this world of our phones and all of the information we're being fed. I mean, I'm guilty of it too. Like I'll find myself when I have some downtime, which is very rare since I do have two kids, I'll find myself being like, let me just sit down on the couch. And then instead of actually resting, I'll just be scrolling on my phone and just consuming more and more information. And I find myself so depleted afterwards. So I actually think one of the more promising things is my students, a lot of them have like total social media diets. They're not on there very often. They have gone back to old school phones that, you know, don't have all this smartphone. I saw, I don't know if you remember, I just saw a video of somebody doing like the slide phone where it has yes. the keyboard on it that like that's coming back. Yes. I was like, I have, I, I have one of these down here, actually. You do? I, I'm like, I probably have one in some <laughs> old box of like cords and things. Like Motorola Razor or something, yes, I want to say. I actually had the Samsung rant. Listen to this listener. 
Remember that? Insane. I had like the little Nokia. <laughs> it makes me feel hopeful though, that that's coming back because I yeah. do think there is a lot more consciousness around the fact that this is really toxic. Like this is not how we should be engaging with the world around us. Well, even like kind of to wrap this up a bit as well, you know, in the photography community, I'm seeing a lot more people going to say like film or less digital cameras where, you know, going to that Google Pixel phone uh, situation, like you're taking a photo and that's what the photo is going to be. You don't have the option to delete something, choose the best option. Obviously, you can take a bunch of photos and later, but I think people are getting back to uh, especially like on Instagram, they're like just doing like, here's a photo dump. I don't care. It's not aesthetic. I'm just putting this out because that's what it is. And obviously, there, there is some curation to that dump. But at the end of the day, it's getting better. It's those small steps that we need to take to get back to this. Okay, I'm not going to hyper realize that this needs to be here and this needs to be here. And, you know, moving away from those stupid YouTube uh, thumbnails where it's like the weird face, you know, <laughs> let's move away from those. That's the next step there. One last thing on that. I was going to say, thinking about like the Google Pixel thing, I just think it's so easy to be like, oh, I mean, whatever, it's fine. It's actually great because then everybody looks cute and nobody's complaining. But then you think about it being extended to something like taking a picture from enslaved peoples, right? And putting a smile on everybody's face and how that completely shifts the context and the story of what happened. So I, yeah, I do think it's worth kind of taking a pause, right? And thinking a little bit more about what that technology uh -huh. actually enables. That's a good point. Yeah. Now they're happy they're being mistreated. So they're okay with right. it. <laughs> uh, before we move on, myself and Water Cooler Talk have embarked upon a mission to give back to various parts of the community and those who helped build our show to where it stands today. For each new episode of the podcast, the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent. On the day of the episode going live, Water Cooler Talk will give a donation to that charity in honor of the guest, as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. And we invite you, listening to this episode, to join in to help spread that message to your own personal audience. So, Hajar, your charity of choice for today's episode is the Zen Education Project. Can you share with us the importance of their work and kind of continue our conversation on the importance of proper education of history in the classroom? Yeah, I, I'm so inspired by the Zen Education Project because they have been working for a while. They have kind of been on the forefront of trying to counter revisionist histories. If you follow their Instagram, which I highly recommend, even though we were just talking about trying to stay off social media, this is worthwhile. <laughs> this will enrich your mind. They every day post some aspect of history that's been forgotten and then help us connect it to what's going on today. And they really show us that we cannot understand our present. We cannot move into the future together unless we understand the past. I like that. Hajar, are you ready to jump into our final news story of the episode today? Yes. This is from the Jamaica Observer, September 18th, 2023. Black students suspended twice for hairstyle. School says it isn't discrimination. After serving an in-school suspension over his hairstyle, a black high school student in Texas immediately received the same punishment when he arrived at school Monday wearing his hair as before in twisted dreadlocks tied on top of his head. Uh, listeners, if you need a picture, it can be seen in the article. Daryl, a junior at the Texas high school, was initially suspended for his hairstyle the same week Texas outlawed racial discrimination based on hairstyles in the newly enacted Crown Act. School officials said his dreadlock violated the dress code, which are as stated... For male students, hair must not extend below the top of a t-shirt collar or to be gathered or worn in a style that would allow the hair to extend below the top of the t-shirt collar, below the eyebrows, or below the earlobes when let down. 
The Crown Act, an acronym for Create a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair, is intended to prohibit race-based discrimination and bar employers and schools from penalizing individuals because of hair texture or protective styles, which includes afros, braids, dreadlocks, twists, or bantu knots. Texas is one of 23 states to enact a version of the Crown Act. A federal bipartisan version of the Crown Act passed in the House of Representatives 235 to 189 in 2020, but failed to acquire enough Republican support in the Senate for a successful vote. For black individuals, hairstyles are more than just a fashion statement. Hair has played an important role across the black diaspora. Those who share a similar cultural region but currently reside elsewhere, uh, said Candace Matthews, a national minister of politics for the New Black Panther Nation, not to be confused with the anti-Semitic New Black Panther organization, she stated, dreadlocks are perceived as a connection to wisdom. This is not a fad, and this is not about getting attention. Here is our connection to our soul, our heritage, and our God. Historians say braids, dreadlocks, and other black hairstyles served as a method of communication across African societies, including to identify tribal affiliation or marriage status, and as clues to safety and freedom for those who were captured and enslaved. After the abolishment of slavery in 1865, black Americans and their hair became political. Although the Civil Rights Act of 1964 banned discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, and national origin, Black Americans continue to face professional and social stigma for not adopting grooming habits that fit the white European beauty standards and beauty norms. The issue of race-based hair discrimination in the workplace has long existed alongside concerns in public and private schools. In 2020, the same high school that suspended Daryl attempted to bar another black student from attending his high school graduation due to the length of his dreadlocks. And in 2018, a white referee in New Jersey told a black high school wrestler to cut his dreadlocks or forfeit the match. Later, viral videos of the wrestler having his hair cut with scissors as the crowd watched spurred passage of the Crown Act in New Jersey. So (laughs) from this article, I wanted to separate what I thought was an important quote that got to the the root of the story, and obviously pun intended on that. But Daryl's mother had shared that all the men of her family going back generations have or have had dreadlocks. She said, our hair is where our strength is. That's our roots. He has his ancestors locked into his hair, and he knows that. When we discuss our image and how we represent ourselves to the broader world, how important is our cultural heritage and our ability to, you know, identify and create those, and I think this is really important, safe communities? Because I know you've shared before, you know, you shared the quote, the first time I heard go back to your country was just like this on a playground in Cincinnati when I was five or six by a white woman who was walking by. The words confused me at the time, but the anger and disdain were unmistakable. I will never forget it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think for me, that quote from the mother in the article is so powerful. Just thinking about ancestors living, you know, through you, through your expression of self and the way you present yourself to the world. And I kind of want to go back to, because I think part of the story is about the importance of being able to express who you are, Mm -hmm. self-expression, identity, cultural heritage. Like that's one part of the story. The other part of the story is just how punitive the rules are to begin with and how they're rooted in something, again, going back to the importance of understanding history. They're rooted in an anti-Black project that is hard to see when you kind of explain it away as like, well, that's just the school rules. 
you know, they just want to have everybody kind of fit a certain standard. It's just so there's no distractions. This is usually like some of the explanation around. Yeah, I think the superintendent said like, this has been the school dress code for like 30 years. So it's like, we're not being racist, quote unquote, we're not being racist. Right. Yes. There's always that knee jerk reaction of like, well, that's not the intent. And therefore what you're saying cannot stand. I think you have to think about what it means when you tell somebody that the way that the hair grows out of their head is not allowed. Like you will be punished for the way that the hair grows out of your head. I mean, just at face value, it feels wrong. It feels unfair. It feels like you're targeting people. Mm -hmm. And when you think about the way black women, understanding these Eurocentric standards, understanding that there would be stakes to wearing their hair natural, that for decades, they use these chemical straighteners in order to fit into these workplaces, in order to garner some level of respect in schools, and that the consequences were not just the chemical burns, the physical discomfort, the hours and hours and hours that were spent on doing their hair. It was also that now we know it causes cancer. There's a story for me that does go beyond even just the cultural piece, which is already so important. MSU, Michigan State, and Duke released these studies. So there's empirical evidence that shows Black women with straightened hair are treated more professionally than Black women with natural hair. Like empirical evidence that's saying, hey, this is the truth, right? Facts don't lie, right? That's what everyone says. And even Michelle Obama has come out and talked about it. And she was like, I didn't want to wear my hair natural during, you know, Barack's presidency because I didn't want to distract. And the people are saying like, oh, we wouldn't have cared. You literally had a meltdown over Barack's tan suit. So yeah, you would have cared. You know, they would have cared if Michelle had natural hair. And that is something that's like, are we really having this conversation that we're going to treat someone differently by just their natural being? We're really just creating something out of nothing because we just want to somehow control somebody else because for 30 years, we've been having this dress code. So this is what the dress code needs to be today. It's the same going to language. It's like language needs to evolve as we evolve, because if we're not changing dress codes, because now we're having more diverse student groups, we're just losing the game at that point. 100%. And the word you said that is the crux of this story is control, because that is what this is. It's a story about control. And it's about trying to force people into a white dominant standard. And we can talk about whether that's intentional or not. I don't think the intent actually matters right here because it's really about the impact. And if you're going to set these rules, maybe they're rules that were historically forged when the school was predominantly white, maybe it was even pre-integration, and then you're going to maintain them. And it's the difference between a boy who just has to go get a buzz cut and a boy who has to fundamentally change who he is, give up his sense of self his sense of humanity and dignity in this world. I mean, the case where they cut off that young boy's um, hair Mm -hmm. at the wrestling match, that one brought me to tears. I remember just thinking about the level of disrespect that was embedded in that expectation. And I just think so much of it is like, we can't actually understand. If we look at these as like individual cases, it's easy to just kind of, you know, pass them off and say like, well, that was just that one school But this is like a really wide ranging story. It takes place through dress codes, you know, through hair standards, through beauty standards, and also through just other modes of presentation, the way you talk, the idea that you should speak in a particular way, how we define quote unquote professionalism, all of these ways that we try to force non-white people into a standard that 
does not reflect them and their humanity and their heritage and their history. Again, it's like the pronoun story where it doesn't take anything away from us to just expand, to make it a more inclusive space that isn't taking anything away from those who came before. And to that point of control, it's telling the next generation of what they should believe rather than actually having those conversations. Because I remember in high school, like girls couldn't wear anything like slightly revealing because it would distract the boys. Like what? (laughs) So like I wasn't distracted, but then as they were telling me I should be distracted, I'm like, wait, should I be distracted? And as a white male, like all of these things, these rules all fit me, you know, like I'm going through this fine. I'm not worrying about any of these things, but it does affect my friends. It does affect my loved ones. It does affect family members. It's not affecting me, but I'm seeing how it is affecting other people. And as a human, I have the empathy to realize like, oh yeah, it's affecting the people I love. So it's probably affecting people they love just because they're not affecting you doesn't mean they're not affecting other individuals. And that's where that closed mindedness really starts to impact how we create policy, how we create law, how we create dress code, how we create all these things that, all right, we're looking at this one group of people and we're going to make all the laws based off of those group of people. But then we forget about everyone else in the dichotomy of our society. And it's like, you know, you could even think of it in an instrumental way where it's it's good for business to have more inclusive policies. And for me, that's always kind of a more cringe way to approach things. Like I prefer <laughs> to think of it as, as, you know, it's better for humans. Therefore, it should just be the case that we all kind of sign on. But, you know, if the human piece isn't enough for you, there are all the studies and business studies that show mm-hmm. like it actually is better for business. It's better for profits. Like you will retain your employees, you will create a better work culture, people will be more productive. All of these things are true as well. Well, that's even, I mean, going back to kind of as a gamer, I've been playing this game, Baldur's Gate 3. It's like a D&D kind of experience game. But a lot of the characters are gay, bisexual, trans, you know, but it's not a big thing. They didn't come out, the studio, Larry and I think it's the studio, they didn't come out and be like, we got gay characters, we got trans characters, buy our game. <laughs> it was done authentically, and each of those characters are complex. Right. You know, I had a good conversation with Noah Kazi a long time ago, but he talked about, like, being gay is like the fourth thing on, like, if I was to tell people who I was, that would be like the fourth thing. Like, there's so many more complex, you know, things around this, and that's why I really like what Baldur's Gate did, is like, it wasn't about the characters, it was about just make, or it was about the characters, it was about making the characters good characters. We're not forcing that into somebody. We're not forcing that into a mold. We're just letting life be life. And I think a lot of people see that when it comes to allyship, especially around like Pride Month or, you know, Black History Month or Martin Luther King Day. It's like, okay, you're putting up, you know, a rainbow flag in your Facebook profile photo, but you're also being funded by, you know, countries that hate gay people. Like those two things aren't connecting. And at the end of the day, all you really care about is making those sales and selling those things. You don't actually care about what you're putting out there to the world. It's once again, it's slimy as hell. It sure is. I mean, in the wake of the racial uprisings after George Floyd was killed. I mean, I'm sure you remember all of like the statements that came out from every corporation, corporations that were not paying their employees a living wage, but they were like, we believe Black Lives Matter and we believe in racial justice. And it's like, but do you? Because you don't reflect that in your practices. But look, like I think two things can be true. So I think that those statements, even if they're performative, can have some symbolic value because Mm -hmm. I do think they reflect a kind of cultural commitment to the cause, whether or not they actually back it up. But then I also do think you're right that they 
should be held to task for actually following through and walking the walk. So it's not just about pointing out their hypocrisy. It's also about saying, but what are you going to do about it? And making sure that they follow through because it was too easy for like, once the pandemic had kind of faded into oblivion, we could talk about like the revisionist memory of the pandemic too. But once it had faded and, you know, the racial uprisings had faded and actually a lot of the kind of reactionary backlash had come about, you notice the corporations weren't saying anything anymore because it had kind of fallen out of public favor again. Mm -hmm. So I do think there's like the both and where I think, you know, allyship is about saying the right things, you know, when you can and, and expressing them publicly. But it it's also much more. The piece that really matters is what you're doing on the day to day in your own life. And it's a practice. Like it's not you do one thing and you're done. I think that's been a real lesson for me is like, I'm constantly learning because things are constantly changing. I'm always checking myself and my students check me too. Like they will let me know if I, you know, used a wrong word or I missed the context on something or if I just, you know, something just didn't land, they will let me know because I create that space for them. Yeah. I think what you said about it's a good start, like even, you know, posting a black square on Instagram or having a hashtag or, you know, sticker on your vehicle, like that's a good start. But you also have to realize like you have to continue, like, Going back to Martin Luther King Jr., he talked about the great stumbling block for the Negro wasn't the KKK, wasn't the white city councils, but it was the moderate white American who just wants to sit by and say, well, at least I'm not racist. (laughs) You know, at least I'm not, you know, wearing a pointy hood. You know, you have to understand that individuals are hurting and are hurting in our country, whether it be race, whether it be religion, whether it be sexuality, whether it be the ability to afford, you know, basic things like a roof over their head, food on their table, and take the action. Like you don't need to go out and be, I know Mother Teresa now is like, as we've heard more about who she is, maybe not the best example, but you don't need to go out there and save the world. But you do have to start making those, even if they're just small baby steps moving forward. You can't just say, well, I have a hashtag on my Instagram, so I'm good. Once again, I think what you said was perfect. That's a good start. But like, what are you doing next? Yeah. Because I think whatever kind of political stance you take, I would like to think that everybody believes in every human's capacity and right to just be. And that's when we're talking about the pronouns or we're talking about, you know, the Crown Act and, you know, the hairstyles that are allowed in certain spaces. It's about the right to just be, to be fully yourself, to not feel like you are in harm's way because of it. And I think once you recognize that that's what the story really is, it's a Mm -hmm. lot easier to hear past all the noise. When how do we like I know kind of how do we start having those conversations, those active conversations with family, friends, coworkers, colleagues, whatever it may be to talk about the subtleness of discrimination that we're seeing, like, for example, in this dress code, how are we even talking about the story? You know, those MSU and Duke studies I talked about, you know, Michelle's experience in the White House, like, how do we start having those conversations? Because those are conversations that are very tough to have. Yeah, they're incredibly hard. And I've seen so many of them just go left so fast. And I think especially after the heightened tension of the Trump era, and then you get the pandemic on top of it, like those divisions within families, within friend groups, some of them I don't think will ever heal. I have so many examples, you know, even within just sort of an extended friend group of people that just aren't coming back. It's very clear that they, they're long gone. But I do think for those of us that are really committed to the people that we love, you know, who we are going to be sitting at a Thanksgiving table with every year from here on out, I think it is worth 
maybe questioning a lot of the premise of these relationships where we just don't talk about politics or religion, you know, as the common saying goes. I think having the difficult conversations begins with the listening, asking questions without the intention to respond. So asking questions, sitting in the discomfort, hearing things that we don't want to hear. And I say this not for everybody. I actually think if you are in a positionality that's already precarious, that's already experiencing a lot of violence and harm, you are not the one that needs to be having these conversations. I'm talking more about those of us that are in positions of privilege, who have a kind of outsider stance, who can perhaps approach it and and not have to internalize necessarily the messages that are being fed to us if they are particularly harmful or violent. So yeah, so I think that's one of the keys. And I say this as somebody who's married to a white man. And so I'm always telling him like, it's most valuable for you to talk to your people. Mm-hmm. Because if I do it, then it's read as the brown woman in the room. So I mean, Adam, I'm sure you've had a lot of that. Well, that's even like having the show, like everyone's like, oh, it's just another white man with a podcast. And it's like, I, I mean, like, there's nothing I can do. Like, this is how I was born. This is who I am. But I do see the the ability and the privilege to have these conversations to reach an audience of people that you know, is in the majority and can make those changes. As Martin Luther King said, the white moderate is what's going to need to listen and hear what's going on to help everyone else, which is kind of like (laughs) a little weird back and forth. But there's so much importance to how we talk about things and how certain individuals talk about things and the power they have. And you have to realize the influence you do have. Getting to the table at Thanksgiving and just listening and hearing what people say but also coming in informed about what you believe. I think a lot of people, especially this day and age, they do have deep beliefs on what they believe. They're not as educated as I think they should be on it. So it's when you want to try to, I don't even know if convince is the right word, but to talk to somebody and potentially change their viewpoint, you at the same time have to know what the heck you're talking about. Because if you're spouting things back, they're going to be like, well, I don't feel like you're confident in what you're saying. So why am I going to believe what you're saying? And then also question, I think, where people are getting their information from and really be like, okay, oh, that's interesting. Like, where did you hear that from? Because a lot of the time people will just take headlines, just take little clips, little take, you know, that one line from that 16, 17 minute speech. And that becomes their uh, belief system. That becomes their philosophy. That becomes their ideals. And until they're challenged on that, but challenged, and obviously I think we need to start challenging people in respectful ways, especially around family, friend, when friends, loved ones, because that's not going to go well versus, okay, what are your beliefs? Let's talk about them. Let's have a conversation. Where are you getting that information from? Is that you know a valid information source? This is what I'm hearing. This is what I'm seeing. Like Having those conversations that are done in a more respectful way, Like I get it. It doesn't make sense. But at the end of the day, that's how you change people's minds by showing that respect to them that you want from them as well. So for me, one of the most disheartening things is all of the studies that have come out that show like you present people with facts and they just dig in deeper. Mm -hmm. So like that the facts themselves won't sway people. But you totally have a point that you marry, you marry like a good knowledge base with respect, with listening, with humility. And I think you could get somewhere. But I also think because I feel like I've run the hamster wheel on these so many times with certain people I feel like I have limited faith in actually changing people's minds. I have much more faith in drawing them in in different ways. And so for me, like maybe it starts with the Thanksgiving conversation, but then maybe you extend it to, you know, when I talk about base building and the importance of building community, I'm thinking about simple ways. Like you have them come and meet you 
and do some sort of community activity with you. You have them engage in these spaces that maybe they hadn't been in before. And it doesn't have to be like a proper Black Lives Matter protest. I don't think I don't think certain folks are gonna make that leap. Like actually most people won't. But it could just be like a, you know, a community space, a community organization. It could be something educational based, community garden. I mean, there are all sorts of different spaces where community is built on the ground with people who wouldn't otherwise come together. And sometimes drawing those folks that are like kind of on the margins, they don't really go one way or another. I, for me, it's the worst type of person, but potentially the the easiest person to reach is the person who says they're not political. They don't talk about <laughs> politics, right? They drive me crazy because I'm like, your uh-huh. literal life shaped by politics, but okay. Everyone else cares about politics. Yes, exactly. And I'm like, okay, I get it. You're, you're uncomfortable. They make you uncomfortable. So let's draw you into a space that's not about politics explicitly, but that reminds you that you are part of something greater than yourself and that there is so much value and power in coming together with other people. When especially in this space and in the public space that we both find each other in, we kind of have to be the catalyst for people that aren't in that space, you know, <laughs> getting away from the ego of it. But if I, you know, have someone in my life where I'm like, I get where you're coming from, but I think you just have the wrong information. You have the wrong philosophy around this. Not that I know everything, right? I want to make that very clear. But I'm like, hey, you know, you trust me. I've talked about this on this show. Listen to that episode. Every single conversation I've had has been a very respectful conversation. And so listen to this conversation, because I think if you trust me enough to be a part of our lives together, you should trust me enough that I'm bringing on guests that they're saying good things. They're saying things that matter. And that's like a has been a good conduit for me is like, well, listen to this episode I had talking about that. And maybe this will change your mind. Or maybe that'll just be the catalyst to start this conversation. I love that. Yeah. And I think that also makes me think that sometimes at the core of a person's like oppositional stance, a stance that's rooted in like disinformation, all this, a lot of times it's just rooted in fear. And it's fear that's intentionally created politically because you make people scared and then they really are debilitated and all they can do is follow the leader. So I think if you can help to quell that fear, if you can listen to their actual concerns where they lie, and oftentimes they lie in things that we can all relate to, like the safety of their family, of being able to practice a particular religion in this country, of living a particular way of life. When you can actually hear those fears on a deeper human level, it's a lot easier to connect to them. And then to kind of like talk them off the ledge a little bit. Well, yeah, because no one likes to be uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. But like to really address the root causes of a lot of our issues, it means we have to address those things that are making us uncomfortable. And to make that change, you know, we have to change our current comfort to make room for others to be comfortable. I can give up my ability to be comfortable, but I don't have to give it all up. That's what a lot of people that are afraid to have these conversations are like, well, if this happens, then... I'm just going to be very uncomfortable. It's like, you're going to be a little bit uncomfortable, which is these individuals have been uncomfortable their whole lives, you know, so we're sharing the, we're balancing the scales a little bit here, but you don't have to give away everything. And I think that's how we need to reframe those conversations on, it's okay to, you know, do those small steps to change a little bit. You don't have to give away everything right away. I think that's where the fear comes from because they think that uncomfortableness means nothing when really it's just, it's just a small little sliver. That's all people are asking for. That's it right there. I'm like, just tell them that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Hajar, I want to thank you for taking the time to share your perspective on some of the strangest and most bizarre news stories the world has to offer in engaging productive and meaningful conversations. 
Listeners, if you would like to keep up with Hajar and hear more from her book, The Struggle for the People's King, you can do so by heading to her Instagram at profhajaryazdia or by heading to her website, www.hajaryazdia, once again on Instagram at profhajaryazdia or on her website, www.hajaryazdia.com. And as always, to make it easier for you, listener, those links will be included in the description of this episode and on our official podcast website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. So I also wanted to, here at the end, cover this idea of hybridity. Hy- hybridity? Hy- am I saying that right? Hybridity. <laughs> hybridity. It, it sounded wrong coming out. I was like, no way I'm saying that right. Uh, but you, you previously discussed that you talked about how the contemporary cultural landscape is an amalgam of cross-cultural influences blended, patchworked, and layer upon one another, unbound and fluid, culture is hybrid and interstitial, moving between spaces of meaning. I thought that was like a really good kind of like universal quote, but can you further expand upon those words and talk to the importance of how different cultures mix and change and how doing so can allow for the breakdowns of barriers and division. Yeah. Well, okay. First of all, I love that you've gone into like the archives of my work. I appreciate <laughs> you, Adam. That was like the first paper I ever published. It was in graduate school, my first graduate program. Um, so it feels like a hundred years ago. And I will also, I will first explain it. And then I'm going to say one thing about how my thinking's actually changed a bit since I wrote that paper. So this is a paper where I really think about the existence of cultural hybridity, which is really something that just refers to the fact that all of the culture in the world around us doesn't have these firm boundaries around it. You know, there's no sort of natural division between one culture and the next because of the way that we're social beings, because of the socio-historical, the global forces of migration, imperialism, colonialism, all of this. Our cultures are always made by this patchwork. They meld into each other. They have multiple meanings. They're really layered. And so in this paper, I was really trying to make the claim that if we think about the world in terms of cultural hybridity, it's a lot easier to break down some of these false boundaries in our head that we think divides us and them. So whether that means white Americans and black Americans, whether that means gay and straight, and just thinking also globally about the fact that in so many ways, the projects of nationalism make us have these firm boundaries between the United States as a country and then these other countries. It's been used to justify war. It's been used to justify violence abroad. I mean, we're seeing a horrible war play out right now. And many Americans are taking stances on it that have such firm binaries that that kind of belie the fact that our cultures are always intertwined. So I think that was really the move that I was making in that paper. And what's interesting is that since then, I have become a little bit more skeptical. And I say that not in the sense that I still believe completely that the cultural hybridity exists. I also think, though, that these boundaries between us, even though they are false, have so much power that we really have to grapple with them first. And so even though this was kind of like an idealist stance that I took in this paper at the very beginning of my academic career, I share that idealism now, but I think I see it more in terms of we really need to recognize the structures first. So if we can't even agree that systems of power exist, that these boundaries are created to divide us, then we can't move on to that next step quite yet. I mean, like, how do we start having that conversation, though? Because even something like, you know, race is just a concept that we created, I think, in like the 16th or 
17th century to divide the poor from the poor. So they were like, hey, the rich people are like, hey, don't worry about us stealing from your pocket. Focus on each other. We keep creating these structures, but how do we address them if we're just going to keep doing this over and over again, it seems like? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's always about the the story of the people. So I will say, I mean, race comes from racism. So racism mm-hmm. precedes race. And I think it's an ex- important distinction just because I think a lot of times we think like that the racial categories themselves created racism, that there was like a natural division between like dark-skinned peoples and light-skinned peoples. But when you realize that it was the project of racism that created the division between races to make them meaningful, to create that hierarchy, then you realize the political projects that are always at the core of the world that we see today. So going back to where I see the solution, it's not a solution I see playing out in our lifetime, but it requires our work in this lifetime. And it's one where it's rooted in bringing as many people together as possible in order to challenge that 0.1% that is controlling from the top, that is sparring and just strengthening all of these structures that continues to keep us divided because they know that if we come together, we are unstoppable. And so for me, that is the story of community building across divisions, across boundaries, of realizing that our fates are interlinked. So that's like really where my hope lies. Yeah. And I think we are starting to see that with a lot of strikes happening, whether it be the writer strike, the actor strike, now the auto workers strike, you know, UPS went on strike. And it always has confused me so much when people are against those striking for a better life, because they're not just striking for a better life for themselves, they're striking for a better life for you as well, because they're saying, hey, the corporations are taking a lot, you know, that small 1%, even smaller percent than that, are taking and taking, and they're taking from you too, but it's just, we're focused on where they're taking it from me now. And I've never really understood that. And I think those are the individuals that really need to be having these respectful conversations with and saying like, why are you mad at people trying to have a better life? Oh, because you don't have that life. You want that life. Are you willing to stand up and strike for that life, fight for that life? And I think that's what we're seeing a lot with the reactions to specifically right now, the auto workers striking. Yeah. I mean, the strikes have been super inspiring. It's such a resurgence of this old age where unions were super strong before the powerful interests broke them down and then convinced us all that unions were evil. Mm-hmm. But you're right that the the resistance, even among those who may be poor, right? Resistance from those who may be middle class, who are not owners themselves, is like, you know, if we want to think of it in the classic sense, it's like the false consciousness where they perceive some sort of allegiance to the owner as opposed to the worker. And I think part of it is also this kind of beautiful myth that this country is based on, which is that if you work hard enough, you can make it, you know, that any of us could be a billionaire. And I I guess the question I always want to ask is like, is that myth more powerful to you than the idea that we could all have a living wage and live our lives sheltered and safe and be able to provide for our families. Like that's the world I want to live in. I care about that much more than having the billions. I think people are so disconnected sometimes to how their own actions affect those around them. And I think that's where we need to have that introspection and, you know, really realize like, okay, I'm doing this, but you don't have to go like super crazy on it, but like I'm doing this. So how is this affecting everyone else in my community? And having those conversations, I think over time, once again, I think what you beautifully said, you know, it's that quote, it's, 
I'm not planting this tree so I can enjoy the shade. I'm planting it so my next generation can enjoy the shade and their generation can enjoy the shade. And so that's where the mindset needs to be. It's like, I'm willing to fight for what's right. I might not be able to uh, enjoy what I'm fighting for, but I know my kids are, their kids are, their kids are, and that's what matters. And I think you need to get into that mindset to create real, lasting, impactful change. Yes. And it's it's too easy to look at the world around us, see like all the fires burning and just kind of want to throw your hands up and say, you know, forget it. <laughs> and I get that impulse because I have days like that too, where I truly mm-hmm. just can't handle any of it. And I think we just have to remember that that sense of overwhelm is part of the point. They want us to be overwhelmed. They want us to feel weak and powerless. When we're in that state, that's when we think we're under threat. That's when we're much more likely to jump on the bandwagon of somebody who tells a really compelling story about how they're going to keep us away from the people that are coming for us, you know, that try to tell a really simple story that pits, you know, scapegoats against the victors. And I think the messiness of human life, the complexity is really what we should try to adjust to. I think living in that space of discomfort, that space of unknowing, that's a practice. But I also think when we have those initial feelings that bubble up inside us where we're like, I am uncomfortable. I don't like this. I feel scared. I feel angry. Like instead of running from that, I think, and this sounds so woo woo, but like, I really, I really think part of it really does begin with kind of our individual capacity to sit with our emotions, to sit with it and say, nothing has gone wrong. My reaction is human. Mm -hmm. I am a human. Right. And to begin from that point. When I think our reactions too, as well as people, as they get more and more into the space and feel more comfortable, like we need to all like tenor our reactions to say like, you know, obviously a a lot going on now with the Israel-Palestine conflict and people voicing their opinions and people getting yelled at and, you know, their lives potentially ruined over their opinions. I mean, maybe not that dramatic, um, but also kind of that dramatic. And it's like, you got to give people the space to learn, to be wrong, to be able to correct themselves, to learn from those mistakes. And if you're not giving that, more and more people aren't going to be willing to share their opinions, aren't going to be willing to fight for what they need to fight for. Because the last time they did it, people were like, oh, is this your home address? Yeah, you better be careful what you say next. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that fear is very real. I think the fear that a lot of regular people have to to disengage simply because they're afraid of saying the wrong thing. That's something I hear a lot from my students. They they say that they just don't wade into these conversations because they're, you know, they don't want to get shunned. I don't even like the term quote unquote cancel culture because I think that is another one that's been politically <laughs> constructed to shut people uh-huh. up. It's not true, right? There are very few people who are formally Louis, canceled. Louis C.K. is still selling out shows at Madison Square Garden, so he's, he's doing, doing fine. great. <laughs> yes. I mean, look, there are so many that just go behind the scenes. They are still quite lucrative. They are making their money, and they just rebrand and come back stronger. Mm-hmm. So this is all to say that it's really about a call for accountability. And I mean, I've, I've been called in as well. We could say called out, but I, I like to think of it as called in because really it's about accountability. It's about recognizing, sitting, and trying to learn from it. So yeah, I mean, no, nobody wants to feel like somebody's going to come for them. But if we're really just going to sit and not do anything because we're afraid of that, like, well, what are we doing? <laughs> exactly. I like that. I always I always like to say called up. People are calling me up to oh, be I a better that. person. Hopefully, I'll try to be a better person. But Hajar, we are now to my favorite part of the podcast, the end of the show. Well, that made it sound like I'm happy that the show is ending, but I'm to the point where... <laughs> I pass off the hosting to you. Uh, I'm going to pass the hosting baton to you to perfectly wrap up the show. 
and place the metaphorical bow on our conversation. It has truly been such an enlightening conversation so far. So, you know, the pressure has been slowly building. It's been a good conversation. How are you going to end it? Uh, but the floor is yours to close out our conversation, however you see fit. Thank you, Adam. This has been such a joy. And thank you, listeners, for coming along on this journey. I think for me, the perfect bow is the takeaway that I always like to leave people with from my book, because my book, The Struggle for the People's King, is one that really can feel bleak because it's about revisionist history. It's about how it's dividing us in the present. It's dismantling democracy. But there's also a really hopeful note at the end. And for me, it's one that comes from the legacies of the civil rights movement, which is the power of our critical education and our spiritual education, our power to come together to create change. And so Martin Luther King has this wonderful quote that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And I take from that the ARC, the A-R-C. And the A is for advocate, which is what I think all of us can do in our everyday lives. We can advocate for better, for richer, more complex education in our communities. We can advocate against the laws and legislation that seek to ban books, that seek to repeal critical education. The R is for relate, which is, I think, so much of what Adam and I have talked about today. So we can relate to one another. We can work to relate to our history and learn the histories of the places where we live, the histories of the people that we surround ourselves with, and try to build community from there. And then the C is the one that gives me the most hope. It's the one that we do the least in our daily lives as adults. And it's C for create. So we should take the time to dream and imagine, to create spaces that bring people in, draw people into the fold. And imagine worlds that haven't been, but that very well could be. That was chef's kiss, the way to end it. Uh, Hajar, thank you very much for this conversation. Obviously, being able to do the research on this and the things like I've learned in school, but being able to replace those things with, I'm like, why was I taught it this way? But then actually being able to do the extra work and being like, oh, now I'm kind of seeing the patterns that why I was taught those things. Uh, it was so important for this conversation and just my mindset kind of moving forward with this podcast and how I talk about things. So I very much appreciate you for that and helping open the mind a little bit. Thank you, Adam. This was such a joy. Uh, listeners, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, the show will be over. Peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. At this time, I have the honor to present to you the moral leader of our nation. I have the pleasure to present to you Dr. Martin Luther King, they are. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, 
a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today, signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. 100 years later, the, the Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. And so we've come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the Bank of Justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. So we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. We have also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. 
Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. It would be fatal for the nation to overlook the urgency of the moment. This sweltering summer of the Negro's legitimate discontent will not pass until that is an invigorating autumn of freedom and equality. 1963 is not an end, but a beginning. Those who hoped that the Negro needed to blow off steam and will now be content will have a rude awakening if the nation returns to business as usual. There will be neither rest nor tranquility in America until the Negro is granted his citizenship rights. The whirlwinds of revolt will continue to shake the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. But that is something that I must say to my people who stand on the warm threshold which leads into the palace of justice. In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protests to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. The marvelous new militancy which has engulfed the Negro community must not lead us to a distrust of all white people. For many of our white brothers, as evidenced by their presence here today, have come to realize that their destiny is tied up with our destiny. They have come to realize that their freedom is inextricably bound to our freedom. We cannot walk alone. And as we walk, we must make the pledge that we shall always march ahead. We cannot turn back. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied as long as our body is heavy with the fatigue of travel. 
cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities. We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity by signs stating for whites only. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I am not my unmindful that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulations. Some of you have come fresh from narrow jail cells. Some of you have come from areas where your quest for freedom left you battered by the storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana. Go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you today, my friend, so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. 
that my poor little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racist, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low the rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together this is our hope this is a faith that I go back to the south with with this faith we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope with this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day, this will be the day with all of God's children be able to sing with new meaning my country tears of thee sweet land of liberty of thee i sing land where my fathers died land of the pilgrim's pride from every mountainside let freedom ring and if america is to be a great nation this must become true and so let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of new hampshire let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, and when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty.